Let me explain the difference between Mother's Day and Father's Day. On Mother's Day, moms get flowers. On Father's Day, men get ties, you know. Neither gift is particularly useful, especially for men, ties. You know, we don't wear ties that often, but on the sentimental side, flowers rank a lot higher on the totem pole of showing someone you love them than, you know, a tie. On Mother's Day, we take our moms out to nice restaurants so that she can get out of the kitchen. On Father's Day, we have backyard cookouts and usually send the dad out there to grill the hamburgers and hot dogs. On Mother's Day, we send moms Hallmark cards filled with beautiful poems and handwritten sentiments. On Father's Day, we send dad a text message or maybe grace him with a phone call, who knows. On Mother's Day, we make every effort to make a pilgrimage to her home or her grave. On Father's Day, we make an effort to go to the beach. On Mother's Day, preachers preach loving odes extolling the virtues of a godly woman. On Father's Day, preachers erupt like a blowtorch, blistering dads about their failures as a father. No wonder so many men think, well, why should I even show up for church on Father's Day? Well, this morning I don't want to talk about the failures of men. I want to talk about men who are doing the things that their family deserves. Now, I'll grant you there are only so many ways that you can characterize a successful man. So if you think you've heard some of these things before, well, it's probably because you have. But that's okay. It never hurts to celebrate our fathers and and men to challenge ourselves to be the person God has called us to be. Okay, if I say the word prioritize, what comes to your mind? Prioritize. Anybody? To put things in order. Okay, what does the dictionary say? According to Webster, Prioritize means to dispose of or handle in order of importance. To dispose of or handle things in the order of importance. Look, the Bible is very clear about the way a man should prioritize his life. Priority one must be your relationship with God through your faith relationship with Jesus. That's first. And nothing, and I mean nothing, can come before that. A perfect example here is Abraham. You ever thought about Abraham? In Genesis 22, verse 2, God instructs Abraham to take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. You know, when you read these words, it's almost like God is toying with Abraham's emotions. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Isaac is also the one through whom God is going to fill all of his covenant promises to Abraham. Take that child and sacrifice him on the mountain as a burnt offering to me. Now I'm going to be honest with you. I would have flunked this test. How about you guys? God, I may be willing to sacrifice my life for you, but don't ask me to sacrifice the life of my child, any of 
of my children or my grandchildren. I can't do that. That would be more than I could handle. But the Bible says Abraham got up the next morning, took Isaac with him, and took call and headed out to the place of sacrifice. He fully intended to do what God had asked him to do. Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son to God. Now that is putting God first in your life. Thankfully, God will never, just like He didn't ask, make Abraham do this, He will never ask any of us to make that kind of sacrifice. Remember, our faith is based on the fact that God sacrificed His Son on the cross for us. But fellas, God is asking you to prioritize your life. To make a conscious effort to put Him first in all things. Now, you might ask yourself, okay, what does that mean on a practical daily basis? What it means is that Jesus must become the Lord and Master of your life. In the last week or so, I have, Steve Bass has developed an interest in soccer or football. I've probably watched five or six games or had them on while, they were, while, it was, while I was doing other things. And I don't know why I never realized it before, but you know these guys are incredible athletes. The other day I was watching Argentina play, and their, their star, Lionel Messi, who's supposed to be the best player in the world, I, you know what? He can run faster dribbling a soccer ball than I can run, or I could run. I don't run anymore. But I could run when I had no impediments whatsoever. I've also noticed how rough soccer is. Defenders will do almost anything to separate you from that ball. And so I've noticed that a lot of times what the players do is they try to screen out the person who's trying to take the ball from them. They'll use their body, as, they'll sort of spread out as wide as they can and try to shield the defender from getting to that ball. You know, a lot of men do the same thing in their spiritual lives. They screen off some part of their life it may be their career, it may be their leisure time, it may be whatever, and they tell God, this is mine, and I'll do with it whatever I please. But here's the thing. Guys who are succeeding at being the man their family deserves understand that that's a dead-end approach to life. It never works. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus said, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. If you will surrender absolute control of your life over to God, He's going to bless you by taking care of all the other things that you worry and stress about. Look, God must come first. I can't repeat that enough. The Bible says you've got to love God more than you love yourself. You've got to love God more than your wife and family. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. You have to love God more than you love anyone or anything else. Jesus said, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. This afternoon, the United States Open Golf Championship will be uh, concluded, and I'll be watching, I'm sure of that. 
You know, whenever the U.S. Open gets played, I can't help but think about Payne Stewart. In 1999, Payne Stewart made a birdie putt on the 18th hole to beat Phil Mickelson in the, in the U.S. Open. In the joy of in that moment, Payne had no idea that he would be dead in less than three months, the victim of a plane crash. After his death, people commented on the change that had taken place in Payne Stewart's life over the last Few, the last few years of his life. At the beginning of his career, Payne Stewart was known as one of the true jerks on the PGA Tour. A guy who put his golf career ahead of anyone and anything else. But then through a miracle of God's grace, Payne Stewart came to, be, to know Jesus as his personal Savior and Lord. And once he made that decision, he made some other decisions. He made a commitment to turn his life around. That from now on, God would be first, his wife Tracy would be second, his children would be third, his family and friends would be fourth, and his golf career would be fifth. The funny thing is, the more Payne Stewart focused on doing those things, the more successful he became on the golf course. After Payne won at Pinehurst, he, when Payne won at Pinehurst, he was wearing a, a WWJD bracelet. What would Jesus do? Afterwards, Bobby Clampett, who was a deeply committed Christian and a, and a friend of Payne Stewart, came up to him and he asked him, why do you wear that bracelet? Payne Stewart's response was, my question is, why don't you? Bobby, I know you love the Lord. You should look for every opportunity to tell others about him. Since that day, Bobby Clampett wears a WWJD bracelet everywhere he goes. It's a testimony to his faith in Jesus and a way to remember his friend, Payne Stewart. A man who is being the person, the man that God wants him to be. The man who is being the family, the man his, his family deserves has his priorities right now. You know, a young man was once offered the deal of a lifetime. God told him, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. Now that, is an incredible offer. God has given this man a blank check. Power, success, money, women, fame. You can ask anything you want, and I will provide it. It must have been incredibly tempting. But look at what, what Solomon decided to do. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9, Solomon prays, Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Give your servant a discerning heart. This is a way of saying that Solomon wanted godly wisdom. Solomon's desire was to, to possess the kind of wisdom that he, would allow him to be the king that his nation deserved. One of the characteristics of being the man their family needs is that you possess godly wisdom. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 says that such a man is temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible says, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it had been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose him. 
You know, I've been a, a senior pastor now for, for 39 years, serving in just two churches. In each case, I've been blessed to know and be loved by two very special men in my life. At New Sandy Creek, it was Cecil Helderman. Excuse me, Cecil Faulkner. Here at Sunset Road, it was Reverend L.F. Helderman. Cecil and Mr. Helderman were, are both with Jesus now. But thinking back on their lives, I realized they possessed three characteristics of godly wisdom. You ready for this? First, they were humble. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, it says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. You know, a man of God, a godly man, understands the way things are. He knows that God and God alone is worthy of praise and worship and adoration. And so humbly he submits his life to Jesus and that relationship gives his life direction and meaning and purpose. In Philippians chapter, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. You have your Bibles? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let me tell you about a second characteristic of, of Cecil Faulkner and Reverend Helderman. They were grateful. They were grateful men. They understood that compared to God's righteousness, all of their good works and deeds were as filthy rags. They realized that Jesus had to die on the cross so that they could have the hope of eternal life. It wasn't something that they earned. It was a gift that God had given them, and they never failed to give God thanks for that gift. Third characteristic of Cecil and Reverend Helderman was they were men of prayer. They prayed. Over the years, I was blessed to pray with them and have them pray for me on many occasions. In fact, Reverend Helderman used to call me sometimes out of the blue to tell me he just finished praying for me. And it seemed like every time he called, I was either in the midst of a crisis here at the church or something would go bad during the day that I would need some extra prayer. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind that you may pray. Cecil Faulkner and L.F. Helderman were two of the most clear-minded, self-controlled men I've ever met. That's why they were also two of the greatest prayer warriors I've ever met. The bottom line, a man who is being the man his family deserves possesses godly wisdom. 
You know, earlier I was talking about the necessity of putting God first in your life. And some of you might be thinking, well, well, you know, won't my wife and family sort of resent me if I do that? I can assure you that will not be a problem. Because by putting God first, you'll also discover the power to love your family better. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 28. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. In commenting on these verses, I heard Dr. Joe Stoll once say, For a man, marriage is an ongoing act of pouring yourself out for the sake of your wife. Which is like 180 degrees removed from the way some men go through life. See, these these normal guys, guys, think that while his wife ought to do anything that he asks her to do, he shouldn't have to do that much for her. The thing is, well, you know, I work for you, I work every day, I, I put bread on the table, I told you I loved you when I married you. That ought to be enough for you. That is not the kind of husband God's Word describes in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 28. According to God's Word, the greater responsibility in a marriage rests on the husband. As a Christian man, you are supposed to love your wife to the point where you are fully committed to her and would be willing to die for her if that would be necessary. In fact, there are four things that your wife needs from you. Four things that will help her know that you love her with all your heart. First of all, she needs to know that you are sincerely and completely devoted to God. She wants you to hear make the same pledge Joshua made when he said, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Second, Your wife needs to know how important she is to you. She wants to to see you acknowledge that she is God's gift to her, to you. A gift that you will cherish and love and honor all the days of your life. Three, she needs affection without an agenda. If the only time your wife hears you say, I love you, is when you are in the mood Trust me, she's not going to feel very good about herself. Number four, she needs to know that you respect her as a person. Proverbs 31 verse 31 31 puts it this way. Her husband has full confidence in her and he praises her. Over the years, Marriage Magazine has offered some great quotes about the way men ought to, to love their wives. Martin Luther said, the Christian is supposed to love his neighbor. And since his wife is his nearest neighbor, she should be his deepest love. But James Conway says, sometimes it's easier to serve your mate if you envision loving the Lord rather than your flawed spouse. Picture doing it for Jesus. The imposition then becomes an honor. Husbands, your wives need to know that you love and respect her that much. She doesn't mind taking second place in your life to God. 
but she needs to know that no other human relationship is more important to you than she is. And then we talk about how a man's supposed to be a father. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You know, here's, here's, the, uh, here's the truth. A lot of men struggle with the whole idea of being a parent. You know? Now, typically, women don't have that struggle. You know? During pregnancy, God uses a woman's body to grow and nourish that baby. And then, once, they, once they've endured the stress of, of labor and delivery, and they see that baby's face, if they were not already signed on for life, they are signed on at that instant. Is that about right, ladies? Some of you are nodding your head. Meanwhile, dads sometimes feel like, you know, we're, we're, on, the out, we're on the outside looking in. We know we're supposed to do something, but we're just not sure if it, if it really matters that much. Guys, I can assure you that it does. Studies have shown that for a girl, having a strong and healthy relationship with her father dramatically increases her sense of self-esteem and worth, virtually eliminates the chance that she will develop an eating disorder later in life, and reduces the probability that she will engage in premarital sexual activity. For a boy, having a strong and healthy relationship with his father helps him understand and appreciate his masculinity, decreases the likelihood that he will develop a problem later in life with drugs and alcohol, and virtually eliminates the possibility that that child will grow into a man who batters or abuses his wife and children. This is the reason God places so much responsibility for parents on the shoulders of the dad. Fathers are given the primary responsibility for discipline in their home. Proverbs 19, 18 says, Discipline your children, for in that there is hope. Dads are also responsible for providing financially for their family. 1 Timothy 5, 8 says, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And as tough as all of that is, God also gave men the responsibility for the spiritual condition of their homes. Deuteronomy 32, verse 46 says, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. Men, if you do these things for your family, it will make all the difference in the world. A man was once sitting beside his daughter's bedside as she was dying with leukemia. The man was heartbroken at the thought of losing his little girl, and tears began to roll down his cheeks. Suddenly, his little girl opened her eyes, and she said, Don't cry, Daddy. When I go to heaven, I'm going to walk up to Jesus, and I'm going to tell him, I'm here today because my daddy told you, knows me about you. Is that a wonderful story? The man who's being the, fam the man his family deserves. He's loving his family the way he is taught in the Bible. You know, when, when I was still playing golf, I always had a problem. My problem was I didn't finish well. You know? On a par five, I'd hit a great drive. 
hit a good second shot, and then chili dip the, the approach to the green. Happened every time. Or I'd play the front nine pretty well, and then I'd get on the back nine, and I would just blow it all to pieces. That's why I was generously known as a duffer or a hacker, a weekend golfer. The fact is a good golfer has to learn how to finish well. In the same way, a man who is being the man his family deserves finishes well. Paul was thinking about finishing well when he wrote these words in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. For I am already been, being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearance. You ever thought about the fact that you're going to die someday? One of the things I try to do every day of my life is look myself in the mirror and say, today could be the last day of your life. How do you want to live it? Trying to live for Jesus is not for the faint of heart or the weak-minded. Trust me, if you're trying to serve God in all that you say and do, Satan will do everything in his power to drag you back down. Now, he can't do anything about your salvation. That is signed, sealed, and delivered by the blood of Jesus. But he will do everything in his power to make your life here on earth absolutely miserable. Sometimes I don't know why Christians are shocked by this truth. I mean, the Bible talks about it all the time. Satan is your enemy. You know, I found that Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, contains the secret to navigating Satan's minefield and finishing well for the glory of God. Listen to what it says here. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You know, as I read these verses, I find that there are three principles at work here. Number one, look at where you've been and then put it behind you. Number two, notice where you are now and then be, don't be consumed about it. And finally, anticipate where you're going and learn to depend on the power and presence of God. So let's take a quick inventory here right now. Where have you been? Are there skeletons in your life Things that you wish that you'd never done? Things that you hope your wife and children will never find out about? The point, the question is here, it's not what you've done. It is, have you taken this to Jesus and confessed it and repented of it and received His forgiveness? If you have, then you know that you are a born-again believer. And God has removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. And He remembers them no more. So, where are you right now? Is your life where, there, where it should be? Are there some areas that you need to surrender to Jesus, to hand over control to the Master? Now, I don't want this to become an opportunity for Satan to beat you up. The Holy Spirit may need to work in some areas of your life, 
But don't forget the wisdom of the old saying. We ain't what we was, we ain't what we will be, but thank God Almighty we ain't what we, what we used to be. Finally, where are you going? Do you have your eyes firmly fixed on Jesus? Are you growing daily in your faith walk with Him? Look, God does not expect perfection. Perfection is a, is a trap that we fall into. What God expects is progress. So pray that this progress will continue each and every day in your life until you see Jesus face to face. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I am confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will carry it on till the day of Jesus, of Christ Jesus. You keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He will help you finish well and provide for all of your family's needs. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day. Father, we thank You for the worship hour that we have experienced. And now we come to the moment of invitation. And I pray that if there's someone here today in the congregation or possibly at home who's never asked Jesus to be their personal Savior and Lord, that they will pray this prayer with me. Dear Jesus, I believe that You are God's one and only Son. Jesus, I believe that You died on the cross for my sin. Thank You, Jesus. Jesus, I believe that You were physically raised from the dead three days after Your death on the cross. Jesus, I confess to You that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of all my sin. I invite You to come into my life and be my Savior and forever friend. Father, if someone has made this commitment to Jesus today, I pray that they'll either come forward when the invitation is offered or send me an email at the text at the address shown on the screen. There may be others who, who want to come forward and, and join our church by a profession of faith and baptism or, or come forward and say, you know, I, I've been searching for a church home and I, I'm ready to make the commitment to, to this church. There may be others who need to come forward and say, I really just want to bow and pray or I really just want to, you to pray with me so that I can become the man that my family deserves. Father, thank you for everything. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.